Hello, and welcome to this FRDH First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. This year marks the centenary of the publication of one of the founding texts of modern American literature, Winesburg, Ohio. Sherwood Anderson's novel has been very important in my life, and I meant to put up a podcast about it a few months ago, closer to the actual anniversary, but it was knocked sideways by events. The age of Trump specializes in taking your feet out from under you like an unexpected riptide at a familiar beach. By the time you get back up and feel balanced, a big breaker is about to smack you in the chest and knock you over again. I kept putting it off to do podcasts on Trump-induced crises, Venezuela, Iran. Is Maduro still in charge in the former? Are we at war with the latter? But in recent weeks, watching the generation wars inside the Democratic Party, I've been thinking about Weinsberg again. Specifically, watching House Speaker Nancy Pelosi try to steer her younger colleagues to what she clearly thinks is a more disciplined approach to taking on the president, and Joe Biden's attempts to resurrect the idea of cooperation with Republicans, even old segregationists, as a good and necessary thing. I was reminded of Weinsberg's opening chapter, the book of the grotesque. It's completely unlike the rest of the book, which is, as the subtitle describes it, a group of tales of Ohio's small-town life. The book of the grotesques is an allegory, not a tale of small-town life. But the rest of the book unfolds as a sequence of short, sometimes very short, stories. We meet the town's residents and find out about their secret lives, the things that have shaped them. The thread that connects their stories is their interactions with young George Willard, a native of the town who writes for the local newspaper. The book really is about George Willard's coming of age. At the end of the book, he will leave all these people behind and head for the big city. In its time, Weinsberg was revolutionary. It dealt with taboo subjects. There's a story about homosexuality, although the word is never mentioned. Sex, frustrated, consummated, drives the inner life of outwardly respectable folks. Nineteenth-century small-town America was being mythologized in a golden haze when Anderson began writing the book. Why? because mass industrialization was destroying it. People were leaving towns and villages like Weinsburg and heading for Chicago and Detroit, where the jobs were. Existence in these cities was harsh. It was natural to get all nostalgic for the simple life of Weinsburg. Anderson is telling readers there was much darkness in small-town life as well. Anderson's book is revolutionary stylistically. The sentences are short and direct, they are American, not an imitation of a high Anglican style. It's no surprise that Hemingway and Faulkner, both just starting out as novelists, regarded Sherwood Anderson as a mentor and sought him out at his home in Chicago. I read the book in my early twenties. I finished it in a day. It isn't long. Two hundred pages. The world it describes was in some ways familiar to me. I had gone to college in Yellow Springs, Ohio about the same size as Weinsberg, and so I had a clearer image of what the town looked like, the buildings and homes, the lawns, the pretty isolation of the place. The style is so direct, the characterization so precise, you move through story after story swiftly, except for that opening allegory, the book of the grotesque. I simply didn't get it. I reread Weinsberg, Ohio, frequently during my twenties and thirties, I played around with adapting it for television. 
well, I chose some theme music for it, the second movement of Charles Ives' String Quartet Number 1. Didn't get much further than that. But it wasn't until I was middle-aged that I finally began to understand the book of the grotesque allegory. It's about an old man, a writer, coming to the end of his life and remembering people he had known. They had become grotesque, not in the way the word is ordinarily used. Some are even beautiful, but they had been misshapen by this. They had discovered a truth. Anderson writes, In the beginning, when the world was young, there were a great many thoughts, but no such thing as a truth. Man made the truths himself, and each truth was a composite of a great many vague thoughts. All about in the world were the truths, and they were all beautiful. There was the truth of virginity, and the truth of passion, the truth of wealth and of poverty, of thrift and of profligacy, of carelessness and abandon. Hundreds and hundreds were the truths, and they were all beautiful. And then the people came along. Each as he appeared snatched up one of the truths, and some who were quite strong snatched up a dozen of them. It was the truths that made the people grotesques. The old man had quite an elaborate theory concerning the matter. It was his notion that the moment one of the people took one of the truths to himself, called it his truth, and tried to live his life by it, he became a grotesque, and the truth became a falsehood. Well, you can understand why I had trouble understanding the allegory. A person needs to have lived long enough to realize that what they thought was true in their 20s and 30s, the truth they would try to live their life by, really isn't the way of the world, and that if you refuse to change your understanding of what comprises truth, you will become increasingly out of step with the changes taking place around you. You will become misshapen, a grotesque. Ever since George McGovern was crushed by Richard Nixon in 1972, there has been a truth among Democrats who work in the party. You have to be a centrist to win. McGovern's candidacy was the product of many things. Nixon's Dirty Tricks team successfully drove the centrist frontrunner, Ed Muskie, out of the race. The generation war that had exploded in riots at the 1968 Democratic Convention in Chicago had led to change, and in the intervening four years, rules to the nominating process had been altered. This made it easier to get McGovern, a decorated World War II bomber pilot, a genuine war hero who was against the Vietnam War, to the top of the ticket. McGovern was unashamedly liberal. Guaranteed federal minimum wage was his big economic idea. Socialism is what they'd call it today. Bill and Hillary Clinton worked on the McGovern campaign in Texas and absorbed the truth, you can't run from the liberal, or in today's parlance, left of the party, and win. As the decades unfolded, it seemed this truth was immutable. Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton disavowed the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party. The most radical thing about Barack Obama was the color of his skin. There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America, he told the 2004 Democratic Convention in the speech that launched him to the presidency. To me, that sounds like the credo of the center. But over 50 years, the center of America's political life has shifted dramatically rightward. To show just how far it has shifted, the center, when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s, was the orthodoxy of FDR's New Deal. 
Today, Bernie Sanders is considered extremely left-wing just for wanting to return to the basic premises of FDR and completing the New Deal by extending a guarantee of health care to all Americans, something Roosevelt first mooted in 1943 and proposed again by Truman in 1945. The media through which politics is reported has changed exponentially since the McGovern disaster and at an accelerated pace since social media, especially Twitter, has become the primary distribution channel for political news. Joe Biden's truth is the truth of comedy, and clinging to it, as he does, has turned him into a grotesque. Biden was elected to the Senate in 1972, the same election that McGovern was crushed in. He was roasted on Twitter for expressing regret that the days when he found common ground to pass legislation with Mississippi Senator James Eastland, a notorious segregationist, were passed. That was the truth of comedy in 1973, when Republicans were not an ideological faction, but a functioning political party. There's no going back to those times. Biden is the frontrunner today for the Democratic nomination, but as the field thins out, he will find that is no longer the case. The supporters of the lesser candidates will move to Warren or Harris, maybe even Sanders. The center cannot hold. Clinging to the center, the truth taken from the McGovern horror show will not make the Democratic candidate attractive this time around. Nancy Pelosi did not get to Congress as quickly as Biden, she had a family to raise, but she was involved in politics from the crib. Her father was serving in the House of Representatives the day she was born. Gesture politics mean nothing to her. Her truth is the truth of pragmatism. Do we have the votes? Then let's bring the issue to the floor for a vote. If not, the tension between Pelosi and the fractious freshman in her caucus burst into the open when Pelosi told Maureen Dowd of the New York Times, all these people have their public whatever and their Twitter world, but they didn't have any following, she meant inside the Democratic caucus. There are four people, and that's how many votes they got. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez responded in the Washington Post, It got to a point where it was just outright disrespectful, the explicit singling out of newly elected women of color. It isn't true, of course. The tension isn't because Pelosi is white and AOC's squad are women of color, but because they are young enough to be her daughters, in the case of AOC, her granddaughter. The truth parents cling to in raising children often makes them seem grotesque to their kids. I'm not sure there's any way to avoid becoming a grotesque by clinging to a truth when times have changed. I find the dynamism of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez thrilling, but I worry that she and the other members of her squad, a decade ago they would have been her posse. Language changes rapidly, especially the language in which we express what we think is the truth. I worry they have already chosen their truth and won't be able to change as the world around them inevitably changes. And of course, it isn't just democratic leaders who have been misshapen by clinging too hard to truths they learned decades ago. Just when the Democrats were on the verge of intra-party civil war, Donald Trump weighed in on the squad in terms that can only be understood as racist. His words united the Democrats instantly, and they also united the sizable minority of American society that gives Trump their unswayable support. 
For many in this group, particularly Trump's age, the truth they grabbed sometime in the late 1960s was America is the greatest country in the world. Blacks rioting, hippies protesting the Vietnam War were ruining it. Love it or leave it. And they have clung to this idealized version of America as America changed in ways they despair of. And so they accept the current president with all his personal flaws because only Trump can make America great again. He is reiterating that old truth, and when he says, go back where you came from to the squad, the unswayables here an updating of America, love it or leave it. That's not just grotesque, in the sense that Sherwood Anderson meant it in Winesburg, Ohio. It's grotesque in its common meaning, ugly, repulsive, distorted. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. By the way, if you have Spotify, there's an excellent recording of Charles Ives' String Quartet No. 1 by the Emerson Quartet streaming there. It really does evoke mythical small-town America. And please visit the website, goldfarbpod.com. There's a lot more to listen there, and you can make a donation. Please do to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.